Please rise for the reading of God's Word. Today we'll be reading two different Proverbs, single verses. Proverbs 1-7. Hear now the Word of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9-10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Thus far, the reading of God's Word and all God's people said, You may be seated. Some weeks back, I preached a sermon on cultivating an awareness of the presence of God and, and why the fear of God is so critical to us, both in terms of us remembering that we are always before the omniscient One, the Holy One, that he always sees me, as the children's catechism says. He knows my thoughts, he knows my motives, he knows my words, he knows my actions. And that should lead me, on the one hand, to abhor sin, and on the other hand, to give me great comfort, to know that I am always in his presence, and uh, that I can never escape that, and that is a wonderful thing. Well, today I kind of want to go a little bit different direction And talk about joy, wisdom, and the fear of God. So the fear of God is uh, is really prominent in biblical thought. It's a neglected subject in our day. There is much, much said about a sweet and sentimental God, but it is not considered cultured or polite to talk about the fear of God. Yet it is the most needed subject of our day. We fear men so much because we fear God so little, and the fear of God is at the very heart of godliness. Without that, there is no godliness. If you take away the fear of God from Christianity, all you have left is either Phariseeism and empty religiosity, Or as Rush Dooney put it, on the other side, he referred to pious gush. Doesn't have any depth. The fear of God, though, is a major, if not the major, theme of Scripture. There are over 150 explicit references to the fear of God in the Bible, and if we were to include all of the implicit or implied references of the fear of God as well, then that would be numbered into the hundreds. But I've combined two terms that don't seem to go together, joy and fear. How can we have the joy of fearing God? It sounds like a contradiction in terms. Again, an interesting combination of words. And more to the point, how can we enjoy fearing God? Our Christian faith points to a relationship with God. It's not just a dogma, not just a set of theological facts, truths, objective truths over here on a piece of paper, but it's actually addressing our relationship to the living God, we as his creatures. But how can you have a relationship with someone you fear? While this puzzles many, there was a time when committed Christians were simply known as God-fearing people. This was a badge of honor. 
But somewhere along the way, we traded it in for a precious moments version of God that has very little substance and certainly doesn't impact the way people live. Now, the idea of fearing God, if thought of at all, it seems like some kind of relic from the past, and that is to our detriment. The fear of God is as relevant today as it was in bygone days, just like the doctrine of hell, for example. Again, we don't hear much about that. That's not polite. We want to scoot that to the side because if that's real, we have real problems. Being out, uh, so, so the idea of being something being out of fashion does not change the truth. If we just decide we're not going to mention that, we're not going to talk about that, it's like a little kid with a piece of broccoli on his plate. He covers his eyes as though that's going to make the broccoli disappear. And there is a theological version of being politically correct with our speech. As strange as it may seem, though, the Bible teaches us that there is joy. In fact, ultimately, that is the product of of a true fear of God. It also says that God delights in those who fear him and holds out to them the promise of blessing. That's where the joy comes from. So our two texts from Proverbs point to to our starting place. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the ABCs. It's the very starting place. Knowledge and wisdom are not the same, though they're closely related, and we might describe wisdom as the best application and use of the knowledge that we have. So we need to consider the beginning of knowledge before we look at the beginning of wisdom. So to read the whole verse again, Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. I've said this many times. I know many smart people who know a lot of things, who do really well on a trivia game, make A's in school, and, and maybe be top of their class, but lack wisdom. Problem with most smart people, or at least many smart people, is they think being smart is the same as being wise. And that's not true. In fact, uh, it is actually, there's, uh, you can go the op- you can be a wise moron, a sophomore, a, uh, you can be, you can be a fool and think you know it all and have no wisdom at all. And so God saved me from a bright young man. Um, a wise young man or an old man, and of course what's, there's no fool like an old fool. So uh, age has nothing to do with this. Wisdom is what we're ultimately after, but it begins with knowledge. It involves the ability to view that information with a right perspective and to use it for the right ends. You can have knowledge and use it for the wrong reasons. Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 8.1 speaks of knowledge that puffs up. Look at me. Look at how much I know. I'm smarter than you. As well as, in Titus 1.1, a knowledge that leads to godliness. Those are two very different directions that knowledge can take you. Only the latter, that is, that that leads to godliness, has the right perspective and proper end in mind. 
Two people may possess essentially the same knowledge in the sense of a body of facts. They could make an A on the quiz. One person views this knowledge as a means of acquiring position or power or possessions and uses it to that end, and the other person sees it as a gift from God and as a steward, to, as his steward to be used to serve him. Remember, our main goal, our chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's not just a, a platitude. That's not just a quaint saying. That indeed, if you say, why am I here? What is my reason for existence? It's to glorify God, to point to him, to magnify him, and then to enjoy him. There's the joy. First, I have to point to him, and to know him is to fear him. If you don't fear him, then I simply say, then you don't know him. You cannot know him and not fear him. So, your chief end, your only reason, your primary reason, I should say, for existence is to glorify God and enjoy him. And so, the ultimate goal uh, to which all knowledge should be directed is that. I overheard a conversation yesterday out at the family camp where a parent said uh, that their son's main goal, somebody had asked, what, what's your son want? What's he want to do? And they said his main goal was to make a lot of money. And while making a lot of money might not be a bad thing, it certainly could be a bad thing. First Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all... And by the way, this is a young person who hadn't made a lot of money yet, so clearly he is loving the idea of making a lot of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I watched a short documentary the other day um, on um, the, uh, I just drew a blank, uh, the, uh, I'll have to call on my wife, the uh, Biltmores, the, the, the people have the Biltmore house, what's that, Vanderbilt, excuse me, wealthiest family in the country, disaster of a family, the money ruined them. One of the descendants just commented, I realized as I looked at about the third or fourth generation that they were pretty much just bums. They had so much money, they had nothing worthwhile to do except devour one another. So regardless of how helpful an item or body of knowledge may be to society, if it doesn't have as its final purpose the glory of God, then it remains defective. It is at best partial and to a degree distorted. It's like a structure without a foundation, a plant without root. And of course, since our fear of God is always imperfect, our knowledge will always be defective and incomplete, not only factually, but also in the way that we use it. That's true for all of us. So we're not talking about perfection here, but direction. But the person who does not fear God doesn't even have the right foundation on which to build. He may be a decent person, generally beneficial to society, but in the end, 
he will fall short because he doesn't fear the Lord. He missed the goal. He missed the objective of life. So people who fear God can use their knowledge both to glorify him and enjoy him. That's the good news. That's what you and I are called to in Christ. Whenever I'm at my doctor's office, I enjoy looking, you know, you got a lot of time when you're sitting there waiting, uh, looking at those various anatomical charts. For example, a detailed diagram of the eye. I'm amazed at the perfection of the human eye, and, and I'm amazed at the God who designed it. I know very little about the eye, but I can thoroughly enjoy the knowledge I have because it is built on the foundation of fearing the one who created the eye. This experience should be true of the believer in every field of knowledge. The student of history can enjoy the subject much more if he believes that history is the outworking of God's sovereign plan and purpose for the world. The history actually has meaning, has a goal, a telos. The Christian astronomer should worship as he observes through his telescope the vast handiwork of God. The godly farmer growing crops rejoices in the awareness that his agricultural skill comes ultimately from God because he reads the Bible that says God instructs him and teaches him the right way of planting and harvesting, Isaiah 28:26. Any sphere of knowledge you're engaged in should be to you as a believer a source of wonder, a source of worship, and should be used as a means of glorifying God, and it will be if you fear God. Finally, on this section, we must consider the most important knowledge of all. Jesus said, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In reality, this is where true knowledge begins. The person who knows God and fears him possesses something more valuable than all the combined knowledge of philosophy and science put together. The scientist and the philosopher may discover ways to improve this life, but the Christian has found the way to eternal life. For what will it profit a man, Jesus said, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So now let's look at the other verse, Proverbs 9.10, and consider fear and wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Again, observe the close connection between wisdom and knowledge. Both those words appear in both these passages in Proverbs 1.7 and 9.10. Since wisdom is knowledge applied to the right end, then knowledge realizes its purpose in conjunction with wisdom. Wisdom is, again, commonly defined as good judgment or the ability to develop the best course of action in response to a given situation. In the Bible, however, wisdom has a strong ethical content. For example, James 3.17 says, But the wisdom that comes from Heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Those are all ethical qualities. 
The ethical emphasis in wisdom is particularly strong in Proverbs. This doesn't exclude what we might call the practical dimension, such as the wise use of time and money. In fact, the book of Proverbs is filled with instructions for day-to-day living. But this practical wisdom always has an ethical tone to it. Wisdom in Proverbs is more concerned with righteous living than it is shrewd judgment. The practical is never divorced from the ethical. It is with this ethical, practical relationship in mind that we should understand how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Just as the fear of God is the foundation of knowledge, so it's the foundation of wisdom. I mean, I want you to think, spend your life building some magnificent structure only to have it crumble and fall in short in a short time after you move in because you didn't pay attention to the foundation. It was for nothing. Consider, for example, Proverbs 11.1, 1, the Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. Society says honesty is the best policy. Why? Well, the answer is it's good for business. The honest auto repair shop gets a good reputation, presumably more cars to repair, more profit. Biblical wisdom, however, recognizes that God, even more than the customer, is concerned about honesty. Biblical wisdom always factors God into the equation Society might cut corners when it isn't apt to hurt business. Honesty is the best policy most of the time, except when it's not, except when I think I can make a little bit more, I can put my thumb on the scale. But the person who fears the Lord strives to be honest all the time, even swearing to his own hurt. He's more concerned about pleasing God than what's good for business. The fact is, honesty is the best policy. That's practical wisdom. That's what the world says, though too often it doesn't practice it. But this kind of wisdom has a wrong foundation. It's essentially self-serving. It leads in the wrong direction and ultimately ends in futility and frustration. By contrast, the wisdom based on the fear of God recognizes the supremacy of God over every area of life and realizes that it is God who ultimately sends poverty and wealth and who humbles and exalts. He raises up kings and he brings them down. He can put holes in your pocket so that you can never fill them. I made a lot of money. Yeah, well, how much did you spend? How much do you owe? So there's more to the equation. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride goes before a fall, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. You see, there's a whole whole bunch of wisdom that has to go into our evaluation of how we're living and what we're doing and how our relationships are. Not just one or two things. All of these things come together. And it's wisdom that rests and rejoices in the fear of God. This principle that wisdom based on the fear of God ultimately leads to joyful living is taught over and over in the book of Proverbs and throughout uh, the Bible for that matter. Um, I'll just look at one other here. Proverbs 15, 16, and 17. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than a great wealth 
than great wealth with turmoil. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened, fattened calf with hatred. The particular principle set forth here is that love is more valuable than wealth. A meal of vegetables is descriptive of a poor to moderate living standard. In Solomon's day, ordinary people rarely ate meat. On the other hand, a fatted calf connotes a wealthy family. And with this background, we can understand what Solomon is saying, that it's better to live in a poor family with love than a wealthy family with hatred and strife. What is joy? Joy is not just a big smile on your face. It's not, even, it's not laughter. It might include that on occasion. I was thinking about this. Joy, in a way, is kind of hard to describe. In First Peter, he talks about a joy unspeakable and full of glory. A joy, a joy is something you can have even when you're going through a hard situation. And again, it may not be a smile on your face. You may genuinely be sad about the situation and joyful. And why can you be joyful? Why do you consider it all joy when you suffer trials? Why? Because you know the Lord and you fear the Lord. And you know he's at work even in the hard thing. And so I can find joy in the hardest of things. Because I walk by faith, not by sight. I believe he is faithful. He will keep his promise. He will do what he said. And he is at work in the very hard thing that's happening right now, if I'll pay attention. This kind of wisdom can only come from the Lord. The truth that love is more valuable than wealth ought to be self-evident. Yet throughout history, and especially in our culture today, It's obvious, for example, that wealth is deemed to be more valuable than love. People might deny that, but their actions often speak louder than words. Our society literally chases after wealth and possessions or other immediate gratification and pleasures. This is true in the inner city ghettos as well as in upscale suburbs. You don't have to be rich for this to happen. You can just want to be rich. This is true in inner city, well, I said, all levels of our society base their supposed happiness on their ability to acquire the possessions and pleasures they want. That's why the airwaves are full of advertisements going to sell you something that's going to make you happy if you just had one of these. Step right up. This drive to acquire money and possessions has wide-ranging social implications, and to name one, Many parents place their professions or jobs above their marriages and their children. Now, you ought to work hard. You ought to work a lot of hours. You ought to be tired, and you ought to bring home the bacon. That's what God's called you to do if you love your family. But there is a point in which it becomes too much. This often results in the swinging door syndrome at home where families seldom sit down together at a meal, let alone spend any extended time together. Parents become alienated from each other in their marriages, their children from their parents, all in the interest of acquiring more things, seeking more personal pleasure. And families who base their wisdom for living on the fear of God, however, recognize what Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
they esteem love far more than material things. As my parents recently moved, sold the home that they moved into when I was two, it spent a lifetime accumulating things. They weren't wealthy people, but they had some things. And here came time for them to move into a very small apartment in an assisted living facility. And as we went through all their years of possessions, uh, and it was, uh, yeah, I want to keep that. No, let that go. We did that for days. There were tables set up in the house because when we were through, the auctioneer was going to come in and sell everything that was not taken. And there was far more left than was taken. And it was sad, but it was also a, a very important reminder of what this says, right? That life does not consist in the abundance of things. As I looked at my mom and dad, who are now 90 and 91, and I saw a man and a woman who loved each other, who loved God, and who still loved each other, even though most of those things got sold at auction for 10 cents on the dollar. All gone, forgotten. It's somebody else's junk now. But they still had what mattered. Faith in God and love for each other. Keep that before you. Because all the rest of this is, it is vanity fair. Esteem love far more than things. If you never buy anything else, if you drive an old car and sit on old furniture, you never take another vacation... If you love each other and you love God, you have everything. And if you don't do that, you have nothing. You have nothing. It's going to go the way of all things. Some of these families may need to be blessed by God with wealth, but that isn't the defining characteristic of their lives. God is far more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. And in the end, your holiness will be your happiness. Here's one more reason why there's joy in fearing God. Psalm 31:19 reads, How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. Let me read that again. How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. God is pictured like a wealthy person who establishes a trust fund for his children to be used after they reach maturity. The money is on hand, it's been set aside, but it is not available until they have reached a prescribed age. That's what God does for those who fear him. He sets aside or stores up goodness for his children to be given at an appropriate time in the future, and what this goodness is and when it will be bestowed is unique to each individual according to God's plan and purpose for that person. Even though things may be dark today, God is storing up goodness for you. Notice, though, that God stores up his goodness not for everyone. 
but for those who fear him. How are we to understand this condition? This verse is an example of a parallelism, that is, where a single idea may be stated again in order uh, in another form. And in this case, fearing God and taking refuge in him are the parallel thoughts. Taking refuge in God is one outworking, one expression of fearing God. Though the circumstances leading to this discouraging period occurred years ago, I still remember how the Holy Spirit enabled me to respond, and I flee to God. As Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The the circumstances don't, don't matter. I'm going to Him every time. That is my refuge. That is the place of safety. And so we must learn to trust in the sovereignty of God, to believe He is in control of our future, and to submit ourselves to whatever He's doing to use the words of 1 Peter 5, 7, we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and trust him for the outcome. This is what it means to fear the Lord in our difficulties. The joy of fearing him doesn't always come immediately, but it certainly does come in his good time. The assurance of our future is not limited to just the difficult periods of life. Excuse me. The assurance of future good is not limited just to the difficult periods of our life. The truth is that God is always storing up good for those who take refuge in him, and he bestows it at the proper time. You've you've been through, most of you live long enough to be been through some hard things. If you feared the Lord, if you gave it to him, if you trusted him, you you were able to look back and say, that was so painful. Boy, I hope I never have to go through that again. But I can see what God was doing. I can see his hand at work. I can see good that he brought out of what appeared to be a disaster. So I will close this morning with a portion of Psalm 89, which a good friend of mine, who every Sunday morning texts me, he's not doesn't live here, but he texts me every Sunday morning. I actually have three friends who do this. And he tells me, I'm praying for you today, praying that the Lord will bless the preaching. I'm praying for your church. And he always has some exhortation to go with it. And today, this morning, this was the exhortation from Psalm 89. And I thought, I'm just going to include this as the close to my sermon because it fits so perfectly. Psalm 89, verses 15 through 17. Blessed or happy or joyful are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching of Scripture that first points us to the necessity of knowing you and of fearing you, of acknowledging that we have at least begun to grasp that you are the Holy One. You are all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise. And then you tell us that you love us. And in that we find joy. We find great comfort. We find encouragement. We find hope 
So, Lord, help us to cultivate an awareness of your presence so that we might fear you, so that we might have greater knowledge and greater wisdom and greater joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few more ways the fear of the Lord is connected to our joy. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it, that is the fear of the Lord, will abide in satisfaction. Are you satisfied? Oh, no, I've got a hard life. No. Yeah, that's the life God gave you right now. Are you satisfied? If you fear the Lord, you'll see that life and go, I am satisfied. And then he says, that person will not be visited with evil. There's a promise. Psalm 25, 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he will show them his covenant. John, John Bunyan wrote, Godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God to the soul. Where there is no sense of hope in the, in the kindness and mercy of God by Jesus Christ, there can be none of this fear, but rather wrath and despair, which produces a fear that is devilish. But godly fear flows from a sense of hope, of the mercy from God by Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges, in his book, uh, The Joy of Fearing God, wrote this about worship. And, of course, we're engaged in that right now, formal worship. It says, music and liturgy can assist or express a worshiping heart. But they cannot make a non-worshipping heart into a worshipping one. The danger is that they can, that is music and liturgy, they can give a non-worshipping heart the sense of having worshipped. So the crucial factor in worship in the church is not the form of worship, but the state of the hearts of the saints. If our corporate worship isn't the expression of our individual worshiping lives, it is unacceptable. If you think you can live any way you want and then go to church on Sunday morning and turn up on and turn on worship with the saints, you're wrong. So what we're about to do in coming to the table is is both serious, it is somber. It is, it is awesome. We ought to see the holiness of God in the death of Christ, in the wrath that was poured out upon Christ in our place, the propitiation of our sins. That which was due to us went to Christ. How does that strike you? That was what was done for you. So that you, can be the righteousness of God. And so we have both fear as we come to this table, as we view God and his holiness and his wrath and his justice and his power. 
But we also have a view of his mercy, of his salvation, of his kindness, of his grace toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we thank you that you were pleased to reveal yourself to us, particularly through your Son and by the Holy Spirit, that you took the scales from our eyes, enabled us to see you, and in seeing you to see ourselves and how desperately needy we are. We thank you that your Spirit and your Word pointed us to a Savior who could take away every last stain of our sins, however wretched however bad, however shameful, that you took those away in him. You cast them as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. Lord, we have a hard time believing that, but help us to do so. Help us to rejoice and delight and sing and dance and clap and be thrilled because we indeed have been set free. Bless us now as we prepare to leave here, as we have fellowship and feasting and go and rest and delight in you and one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.